Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Ocean Matters. I'm Izzy Clark, the producer of this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, and these bonus podcasts are a chance for us to revisit topics and explore extra content from the main episodes. We heard from the amazing Dr. Sylvia Earle about her experiences exploring the deep sea in episode five. As an explorer, oceanographer and former chief scientist at NOAA, America's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Sylvia has devoted her life to understanding our complex ocean and fighting to protect it. This bonus episode features an extra discussion between our host, Helen Shertsky, and Sylvia about other stages of Sylvia's career, starting with how her love for the ocean began. Well, the ocean found me, in a way. (laughs) I was knocked over by a wave when I was about three years old. It was on the coast of New Jersey, and my family had gone for a little vacation. First, I could smell the ocean, and you could hear the ocean from afar, and then seeing the ocean. I turned my back on it for a few moments, and splash, I was tumbled around in that wave, and... My mother might have pulled me out of the ocean thinking that you know she was saving me from the sea, but she saw the big smile on my face and let me go back in, and I've been going back in ever since. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about algae. So when people think about the ocean, they think about dolphins and whales and coloured fish and big things that you can see. But your, one of your early ways into the ocean was these tiny, tiny little things that are too small to see. So tell me a little bit about the algae. One of my professors at school specialised in seaweeds, and it was through his eyes that I could see what most people don't get to see about the importance and the beauty, just the amazing nature of those organisms that have really, over the ages, done the heavy lifting in terms of transforming Earth from rocks and water into a planet that is hospitable for the likes of us. I learned at a fairly early age about something called photosynthesis. (laughs) It's what green things do. Capture carbon dioxide, generate oxygen, really shape the world we live in, in a very fundamental way. If it weren't for photosynthesis, we couldn't exist. Over gazillions of years, well, hundreds of millions of years, in the ocean, they were starting the process that has made Earth habitable for us and for animals of all sorts. So when I had a chance to begin to seriously study life in the ocean, it was natural that I should want to find out about these extraordinary creatures. Was it just the coincidence that you met someone that studied seaweed or did you cho- did seaweed choose you or did you choose the seaweed? <laughs> oh, it's life in the ocean across all forms that drew me into the ocean and have kept me there. I mean, I've spent years studying whales and looking at ecosystems. I suppose I'm mostly an ecologist, although my specialization has been looking at seaweeds. I taken a deep dive (laughs) into looking at them, but to go deeper than photosynthesis can occur. Light penetrates into the ocean, well, clearly to 100 meters, but actually it goes to pretty close to 300 meters. A little bit of light can go a long way with organisms that have special pigments that can capture that little bit of light and power photosynthesis, even when it seems 
really dark to human eyes. The organisms that are equipped by nature <laughs> to capture that light and power their little mighty engines to really shape the way the world that we live in, how it operates. This is where the greatest diversity, the greatest abundance of life on Earth actually is. And most of it, the great majority, is in the dark, below where light penetrates. The average depth of the ocean is two and a half kilometers. And our ability to go that deep exists, but not many people have actually had the privilege of going there. And I was just wondering, what do you think about our relationship with the deep sea? How do we help people care about it so that they want to protect it? On one hand, it's discouraging to see how little of the ocean is proactively being protected. On the other hand, as compared to where we were 50 years ago, we made some real progress. So currently, there are numerous small, medium, and sometimes some areas pretty large, fully protected areas. But overall, it is still only about 3% of the ocean, which means that 97% is open for various forms of exploitation. But the liberations are currently underway, mainly under the umbrella of protecting biodiversity, that substantial areas are being considered to meet the United Nations goal of 30% of land and sea by 2030. So there is consideration of places in the high seas beyond national jurisdiction that can be highly fully protected. And how much is this about protecting the ocean? And how much is it about also protecting ourselves? Because people often, you know, this, it's a slightly selfish thing to think about ourselves. But we are also, you know, if, if we protect the ocean, it's not just that we save this amazing thing. It also changes our environment, right? If you think of the ocean as I do, and others are beginning to understand that the ocean is the blue heart of the planet, and literally, it's the great blue engine that shapes climate, weather, planetary chemistry, holds most of life on Earth in terms of abundance, you know, sheer mass, as well as diversity. There are whole categories of life that are just in the ocean. Only about half of the major groups of animals have ever made it to the land, but they're essentially all out there in the sea. So it's no wonder, I suppose, that people don't really understand how important the ocean is to every breath they take, every drop of water they drink to a planet that works in their favor. But we're getting there in terms of not just getting facts and figures, but to communicate to the public at large so it becomes just basic. We've killed who knows how many species that are unique to the deep sea, creatures we don't even have names for them. I have heard those interested in mining say, well, there's nothing down there, maybe some sea cucumbers, but who cares about them? I'd like to move on to some of the other things you've done, some of the places you've had influence and how you've used it. And I'd like to pick up in particular on your time as chief scientist of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, of course, from 1990 to 1992. Um, you were the first woman to serve in that position. But you also, you know, you came with so much very specific scientific expertise about the ocean. How did you use that? Well, it was a two-way street. I learned so much in that position. This is the agency that was formed with a deliberate intent of bringing atmospheric science and ocean science together, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And that was done in 1970. And the first 
administrator was actually a meteorologist. And for years, and even to the present time, atmospheric sciences tend to dominate. Ocean sciences have always been kind of the, the except for exploiting, that is the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is the part within NOAA that is dedicated to finding, catching, and marketing ocean wildlife. And it is pretty well funded compared to, let's say, the agency within NOAA that is dedicated to caring for the ocean, like the National Marine Sanctuary Program that has uh, roughly about $50 million dollars the fisheries agency that is dedicated to extracting from the ocean is about a billion dollars, which in a sense reflects kind of our attitude overall. So when I went to NOAA as chief scientist, I was really attracted to that really small part of it called the National Marine Sanctuary Program. I thought this is the right time, the right place, let's get going. And on my watch, we were able to successfully build the National Marine Sanctuary Program significantly, but I did more once I left NOAA to build the sanctuary program than when I was inside. And also technology exploration. I really felt the importance, as I still do, that we need to, of course, appreciate the investment in going skyward, but how about equal attention and equal funding for exploring the ocean? That's not too much to ask, is it? Well, I don't think so, but you're <laughs> preaching to the converted here. For someone who has campaigned for so many years like you, to be put in that position, suddenly you must feel you have influence, and yet you resigned from that post. <laughs> you have influence, but with a stroke of your pen, really... Um, you can't protect the other 97% of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that I have greater... I certainly have greater freedom... And I have probably more influence because you are, as a government official, and it was a position that required Senate confirmation. It was a serious business. And I, I say I really value not only the time that I spent there learning a great deal, but I really could not discover or understand from from outside but I also gained respect for those who make a lifetime career of what should be a science-based institution. And how much is this to do with how the public, because I feel now the public is starting to be much more aware of the ocean. Do you think that governments are going to respond to that pressure? If we educate people about this, is that going to push up into government or is it more complicated than that? People power matters. <laughs> governments should, and, and I think largely do. They have to respond to the voice of the people. But although knowledge exists about the state of the ocean, what's there, why it matters, what more we have to do to take care of it and why we need to do this, the knowledge is there, but it is not widely understood. And it's part of why I spend my, <laughs> much of my time now actually doing my utmost as a scientist to, to try to get people to go see for themselves, to use the knowledge, that, just use the tools that are there. Go see Blue Planet 2, Blue Planet 1. The BBC did a wonderful job of exploring and showing people what the ocean is like when you actually get down there in it. And I, I think National Geographic has done a great job of taking people out in and under the ocean and others too. There are hundreds of ways that you can become acquainted with the latest and greatest news about what's going on in the ocean. Now 90% of the sharks are gone. 
Some species are down to only 1%. They're right on the edge that we'll have that oceanic white tips or not in the future, depending on what we do right now. If we wanted to kill the last bluefin tuna, we have the technology to do it. 97% of them are gone in the Pacific already. 3% remain, but we're still eating them. It's still legal to kill them by the ton. It's hard. So on that question of, you know, you, you've, you've talked about some of the horrendous statistics about the ocean and, and sort of finally, what's the thing that gives you most hope for the future of the ocean? You said you're an ocean optimist. So is there one thing that really does give you hope that actually we can do better and we have to do, we have, we have to do better, but what is it that gives you hope that we can do better? There are more whales today than when I was a child. Why? We stopped killing them. Woohoo! We've given them a break. Many of them still die because of us unintentionally, but they still die. But even having said that, when we stop deliberate killing of them, huh, wow, they, they're starting to recover. Turtles, sea turtles, there are more of them too. So where areas in the ocean are protected, you can see the change, the recovery. We can never go back to what was even 10 years ago, let alone 50 or 100. Some pieces have been forever lost, but places where we stop killing the fish and protect the system, we can go there, we can admire it, we can enjoy it, we can spend money as tourists, or just spend money to keep them safe, whatever the reason, the recovery is possible. It does happen. A healthy reef is more resilient to climate change than one that has already been partially dismembered because you've taken the lobsters and the fish and the other creatures, leaving you know, part of a system, not an intact system. We know that, we've seen it, we can measure it, we can show you the evidence. So, of course I'm optimistic. The more of the ocean that we can inspire people to embrace with care or to take action, that we can do our part, whoever we are, wherever we live, to know what the problems are, and then whether it's far upstream or along the edge of the coast or actually out in the ocean. <laughs> Just use your power to restore health to the ocean. Dr. Sylvia Earle, thank you very much. And that's it for this bonus episode. If you haven't already, then do subscribe to Ocean Matters so you're the first to know when there's a new episode. And next time we're on dry land to explore how oceanic islands form and why they are so special. I'm Izzy Clark and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation.